From John 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Thereby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And so they did, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. These are the words of the Lord. If Maria is not in here, just let's keep that between us, okay? <laughs> what is this crack in my cello? Sorry, Maria. Uh, this has been a weird week for, for me. Um, I'm not saying this to applaud, but Emily and I just celebrated our 22-year anniversary on Friday. Wait, wait. At the hospital with my daughter who was having her tonsils removed. And so I literally went to CVS to pick up a couple of things while Kinsley was recovering, and I found a... A, one of those, they've already got Valentine candy out, which was amazing. So I was able to buy a bear about this big with a little chocolatey heart and presented that in the hospital. It was the most romantic thing I've done, maybe in 22 years, actually. And so it's pretty fantastic. Um, and then, so that's where my family's at, sort of home, nursing our oldest daughter. And um, this morning, I was trimming my beard, had a mishap. You see the result. I had to take it all the way down, so just bear with me today. I have no idea what's about to happen, but I'm glad that you're here with me and uh, we get to do this together. We've begun the season of epiphany in the church, and I like to do this during sort of church seasons just to kind of get a gauge of where our community's at, maybe even outside of Trinity Grace. If you grew up in a church that celebrated the seasons, not just of Christmas and Easter, but of like Epiphany and that sort of thing and uh, Lent or whatever, would you just raise your hand if this is like kind of somewhat familiar? Wow. If this is, if you're like, this sounds weird to me, um, I don't know what that that really is all about, Epiphany and all these other seasons, would you raise your hand? Just be, just be honest. Most of you, okay, know your audience. All right, great. So that's really helpful, actually. So we're not going to some weird direction. This is just some, like a historic way of, of marking time for Christians. 
And many Christians and many traditions have been marking time, not according to the January to December calendar, but according to the church calendar, which actually begins at uh, the arrival of Jesus, or Advent is kind of our new year, and then we celebrate the, the, the tide of Christmas, and, um, which is 12 days after Christmas. And then we get into this season, which, which leads us all the way up to the season of Lent, which is a season of prep, uh, pre- preparation, of preparing for um, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which of course happens at Easter. And then following, we have Easter tide, and then we get into this thing called ordinary time, which is really most of the year. And then we come back around to Advent in essence. So uh, we're in a season right now that of course lies between Christmas and Lent. And the, this time, this epiphany time, epiphany actually means manifest. And so traditionally what churches have done is they focused on the manifest presence of God in our world in the person of Jesus. In other words, we believe that God has come in the person of Jesus. He's manifest himself among us. Now what we have to do is wrestle with those implications. What does God, the fact that God came, it's, it's as if an alien ship landed on our planet and an alien got out, and we found out that that alien was the creator of all things, this mysterious force. We'd have to reconcile, wouldn't we? If that happened today in New York City, we'd have to reconcile that fact. Well, the idea of Jesus coming in time is not too dissimilar. It's the idea that we believe God has come. He came not through a spaceship in alien form, but he did come as an alien or an outsider in a sense. He became human so that he could become and be with one of us, or be with all of us. So God has come. We have to reconcile that. If we really believe God has manifest his presence in the person of Jesus, then it would, it would help us to know what happened when people encountered the life of Jesus. We have a record of some of what happened, not all of what happened, but some of what happened in the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John Those contain the stories, the narratives of Jesus' life. And we can see in the lives of people that were both insiders and outsiders culturally, we can see how they reacted or responded or how the coming of Jesus impacted their lives, influenced who they were and what they did. How did those people encounter Jesus? What were the questions they had about Jesus? How did they then change their life, if in any way, according to the fact that they had met this man who claimed to be God, the creator? How did their lives change? Well, Through the season of Epiphany, we want to look at those stories, but we want to do so with an eye on our own lives to say, if we believe that that's true, then then we need to ask some questions about our lives too. How is it that our lives are to be or should be changed, or how should our lives look if we encounter Jesus? What does it look like, or how might we today encounter God manifest in the person of Jesus? How might we encounter him today in much the same way that early followers of Jesus encountered him a couple of thousand years ago. How would we, how, how, what would that call us to? How would our lives change? What would look different about us? Uh, the, the thing I want to uh, focus on this morning really is this idea. I want to look at it from this angle, um, which is how might we encounter Jesus in our lives today? So we'll unpack a bunch of other things as the season, or yeah, as the season sort of rolls along and as we, we move toward Lent about how to respond, how to react. But today is really about if I want to encounter Jesus, if I believe or even want to believe that God has come to earth in the person of Jesus, 
and I believe that I can encounter God, that the reason why God came in human form is so that I could encounter Jesus and then have my life altered as a, as a result of that. If that's possible, then I want to know how can I encounter Jesus in my everyday life, in my work, in my wherever. How can I encounter Jesus? And I think the story at Cana gives us some insight into how we might encounter that same Jesus but in our, in our own lives today. So those are some of the questions we're wrestling with in our Epiphany teaching series, and we're calling the series Love Has a Face. And the idea is that God is love, and love has shown up in the person of Jesus. So that when we look in the face of Jesus, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see and can know the love of our creator God. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 2 in your Bible or on your Bible app on your phone. John chapter 2. Brendan, thank you for reading the teaching text. I'm going to take a chunk of this story and just at, uh, one chunk at a time and just sort of move through the narrative to understand a little bit more. And I hope as you leave today, you'll understand a little bit more about how you might be able to encounter Jesus even this week in your own life. So I'm going to reread this as we go. This is just the first five verses. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, Do whatever he tells you. Now, I think this is... A little funny, and I heard some snickering when Jesus looks at his mom and says, woman, but understand that in the original language, there's nothing about that that's disrespectful in any way. If anything, it might be distancing. Jesus might be distancing himself, but he's not being disrespectful to marry his mother. I do also think it's funny. He's like, woman, what is that to me? And then she just ignores him, and she knows, I'm your mom. You're going to do what I say. And so she says to the servant, he's going to tell you what to do, right? So... What I think we should understand first off about this narrative in John chapter 2 is that something new is breaking in. When we read this story, we should understand that there is an old thing in place, but now a new thing is breaking in and fulfilling that old thing. So uh, in Jesus' day, a bride and groom wouldn't celebrate their wedding with, uh, with a honeymoon. Emily and I were so poor when we got married, and we got married in a a Southern Baptist church, which meant literally we had mints and cake for our guests at our reception. It's embarrassing, and one day I'm going to rectify that. I don't know how yet, but I'm going to figure out how to do that. And um, uh, not for ourselves, but just for our guests, just as an apology. Come and have a lot of wine or something. But the idea, and then we, we got married in Orlando, which is where I'm from, and we were about to move. In fact, I had already moved outside of Florida, and so we thought this might be the last time we're ever in Florida. It wasn't. And um, so we thought, well, let's, let's do our honeymoon at Disney World. Also lame. Got that at a discount and as well. And um, that was it. We had the wedding in the morning, and then we celebrated with mints and cake, and then we said, see you later, and we drove down the road to our honeymoon for a few days, and then we moved. That was it for us. Well, that's not how it works here. In, in Jesus' day... You would, you would celebrate, bride and groom would celebrate their wedding by hosting a seven-day wedding feast at the groom's home. And so if you were going to a wedding, you really had to think about whether you're going to accept that invitation or not. 
Because if you went to a wedding, you were going to be there for seven days. And it was just seven full-on days of celebration and partying. And, and we see here that the wine has run out. And at a seven-day wedding feast, that's a problem. It's a problem. But I hope that you recognize along with me, it's not the same kind of problem that was presented to Jesus later, where a father brings his son and says that he has a demon in him. And he goes into convulsions, and the demon throws him into the fire trying to kill him. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that's a different kind of problem than the one that's being presented to Jesus? Or the centurion that says, please come heal my daughter. She's on her deathbed. And then Jesus doesn't make it in time. Word comes to them that she's already died. And then Jesus raises her from the dead. Like a dead daughter, that's a, different, that's a problem of a different nature, isn't it? And there are all kinds of uh, opportunities for Jesus to act, and we'll see those unfold over time. But like we know what a real problem is, and running out of wine at a party doesn't seem like very much of a problem, does it? Doesn't to me. It's not the same kind of problem of any of those things. It is a problem, it's of a social nature or whatever. And it's not even a problem yet for the guests. They don't even know that the wine has run out in all likelihood. They're feeling pretty good now that it's the third day. They've been drinking since day one. And what's interesting is that John would include that little detail at the beginning of the story, that it was the third day. It's interesting because we've read ahead the life of Jesus. We've seen the life of Jesus unfold over the next few years or whatever it is. And we know in Jesus' story that dead things start to come to life on the third day. New things start to happen. New things break in around Jesus. And that's what's happening here in the Gospel of John. Something new is breaking in. And the first person to sense it, and I think this is important, is not Jesus. It's Mary. The first person in the story to sense that something new is breaking in or the opportunity for something to break in isn't Jesus, it's Mary. She's the one that sees it. And she says to Jesus, this is the moment, this is the opportunity, the time for something new to break in, that time has come, it's the third day. And Mary does something in the story that changes everything. Jesus seems relatively at ease with the fact that the wine has run out. If drunk people get on your nerves, like me, then maybe that's what's happening with Jesus. He's like, good, I'm tired, this is ridiculous. People falling all over me and telling me how much they love me, whatever, fights breaking out in the corner between in-laws, whatever. Mary does something that changes everything. Mary prods Jesus to act. Jesus isn't acting on his own. Mary prods him to act. And because Mary prods Jesus to act, an encounter with Jesus happens, not just for Mary, not just for the disciples, but also for the servants. It occurs to me that if we want to encounter Jesus today, then we should, number one, be willing to prod Jesus to act. Even in the, seeming, in the seemingly silly or frivolous moments that we face in life. How many times have you missed an encounter with Jesus because you were too slow to involve Jesus. And maybe it's because your situation seemed small comparatively. Maybe you looked at the thing you were facing and then you, you know people around you, you looked at the world and you said, just this thing seems silly. It seems a little frivolous compared. I'm not sure God really cares all that much about, I don't even 
want to involve Jesus in that. Well, I think Mary's actions teach us that if we want to encounter Jesus, then we must be willing to involve him in those things, the seemingly mundane things, the things that we might call unspiritual, the frivolous moments of our lives. Because some of us miss Jesus not because he is unwilling to act, but because we are unwilling to ask. So if we want to encounter Jesus, we would be wise to follow Mary's example. She prods him to act. Jesus actually offers a little resistance. She just blows past it as if it's already going to happen. She persuades Jesus. So think about it this way. Every time we have the opportunity to involve Jesus and we choose not to, we are training our hearts not to trust even in the small things. If we say, no, I'm not going to involve Jesus in that, I'm, I'm training my heart then to not reach out to Jesus. And so as things get bigger and bigger, it might become more and more difficult for me to involve or engage Jesus in the stuff of my life because I've been trained, I've equipped myself how to respond. And the way that I respond is to withhold, is to allow Jesus to just be Jesus and whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. But that's not what Mary does here. There's a story that Jesus tells. In fact, he says elsewhere, I think it's in Luke, in Luke's gospel. Jesus says, okay, to his listeners, he says, I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine that you are at home and it's midnight and someone comes and knocks at your door and it's a friend, like maybe a college friend. Jesus doesn't say college, but I'm just, let's modernize it. A college friend, someone you haven't seen in a while. They knock on the door, they say who it is, and you're surprised, but you're obligated to welcome them in. This is a culture of hospitality. And maybe you even want to welcome them into your home, but you realize as soon as they come in that you don't have any bread for them. And imagine that then you go to your neighbor, again, it's midnight, and you bang on their door. And the neighbor says, who is it? And you say who it is. And they say, go away. I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. It's too late. Go away. Did you say, I can't go away. I've had a friend come. They've shown up. And I have no bread. I need bread. And you persist. You keep knocking on the door. Jesus says, so I say to you, in this same passage in Luke, he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one, who seeks and find, uh, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So you want to know what prayer is, or you want to know how to pray? It is prodding. Prayer is prodding. It's persuading. It's persuading Jesus to show up in your moment, no matter how small or how silly or how frivolous it might seem to you. Because encounter with Jesus happens when we involve him in our lives. Jesus is into the small stuff too, not just the big stuff. And so think about it. If Jesus is into the small problems in your life and he shows up in those moments, what do you think he's going to do? Or how do you think he's going to show up when you, you, when you really have some serious problems? If Jesus is willing to show up when you run out of wine, then what do you think he's going to do when your back is really against the wall? If Jesus can be moved when the problem seems mundane, how much more will he be moved when the problem 
is massive. You know what it does when we persuade Jesus to move in the small things? When we choose to involve Jesus in the small things, it it trains us to turn to him and it teaches us to trust him to show up over time. And there's one more detail we shouldn't overlook. Mary turns to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. Encounter with Jesus begins when we involve Jesus, but it it doesn't end there. Jesus always involves the one who reaches out. If we are willing to reach out, to involve Jesus, then we need to be ready to respond, to do whatever he tells us. So if we want to encounter Jesus, one, we involve Jesus or we prod Jesus to act, and number two, we do whatever he tells us. See, we often miss encounter with Jesus because we are either unwilling to involve Jesus or the second thing, we're unwilling to obey him when we involve him. So know that Jesus is going to invite you into this process of whatever it is, of meeting whatever, it, whatever need it is. And ultimately, God is using this as an opportunity to just show up in your life. God cares about us, and God wants to meet our needs, and that's important. But I think more than that, God just wants to be with us and to show us that he is with us. And for us to know and feel and believe and trust that he is present, ever present, as the psalmist says, in 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 our times of need. God wants us to know that he's with us. And we often miss those encounters with Jesus because we either won't involve him in the first place or, or when God then involves us in it, we don't do the thing that he calls us to do. So a couple of questions to think about. Number one, what are you not involving Jesus in right now because it seems too small? Now, I could leave that second part of the question off and just say, what are you not involving Jesus in right now? You can ask that question as well. But my guess is that there are some of us that just have missed so many opportunities, weekly, maybe even daily opportunities to involve Jesus because something seems small. And then the second question, what are you not doing even though Jesus is telling you to do it? It's really quiet. The jokes were funny at the beginning, but now it's very serious. Because now this might cost us something. Now we might be thinking, well, do I really want to encounter Jesus all that much? Am I willing to give something up? If that's what Jesus is calling me to do, am I willing to make a sacrifice of some kind if that's what Jesus is calling me to do in response to me involving him? What is it that God is calling me to do that I am not doing even though Jesus is telling me to do it? And you might not know, you might just sense that there's a lack of encounter in your life that faith has become for you less of an exercise in the presence of God and, and more sort of like just practices or rituals or, or something along those lines. And those things are fine, but that's not what it is to, to know God and to be known by him. To, to know God and to be known by him is to be in intimate, close proximity with God, to, to speak with God, to, for us to be able to say what was said about Adam and Eve that God walked with them in the cool of the day. To know that God is our friend. To communicate with him and have God communicating with us. 
to feel alone, but then not feel alone because we know that God never leaves us and he never forsakes us. There's so much more available to us. And so you might not know that, there's a, that you're not involving Jesus in your life, and you might not know that there's something he's called you to do that you're not doing, but you just might sense that there's kind of a lack in your life. And so if that's the case, I want to encourage you just to ask God this morning, God, is there something, an opportunity you've given me to involve you in my life that I've not taken you up on? Even if it's small, help me to see that today. Ask God the second thing, God, are you calling me to do something that I'm just oblivious about? Have you called me to do something, to engage with you? Are you involving me in the thing that you're doing? And, and something that I'm not doing, help me to, to see those things. Because something new is breaking in. It's breaking in whether we get to experience it or not. And God's invitation for you this morning is to experience his inbreaking, to experience his manifest presence. The face of love has come to earth. So we involve Jesus and we respond to him. We do what he says to do. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, these of course are servants that are working the party, servants of the household probably, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, which I love. There's this sort of theme throughout Epiphany. It's that God often shows up to the lowly or the outsider. And the one who's in charge or the boss man or whoever it is, that person is often on the outside looking in. So the, the master doesn't know where it comes from or the, the master of the banquet doesn't know, but the servants do. And then he called the bridegroom aside. The master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best until now. I think, and I'm not a historian, but, but I think the master of the banquet is telling the groom, You've, you're doing it wrong. This is not, you haven't been married before, cool, whatever. Maybe you haven't been to a lot of weddings, but you're doing it wrong. See, we should have told you this ahead of time. There's the good wine and then the okay wine and then the whatever is not even considered wine. And you serve it in that order because the only thing your guests are really going to remember after they've had a good lather or whatever is the good wine that you served at the very beginning. You're doing it wrong. In other words, you've wasted the good wine on people who have already had so much that they don't know the difference between their two-buck chuck and their chateau lafitte. Okay? I had to look up an expensive wine to throw that in there. <laughs> of course, we know something that the, that the banquet master doesn't know, don't we? That the groom has no idea what he's even talking about. It, it, it's Jesus. In, in, in other words, I think we're meant to look at this scene and maybe be audacious enough to look at Jesus and say, you're doing it wrong. Jesus kind of goes over the top here, doesn't he? I mean, six water jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, that's a lot of wine. And then Jesus is like, hey, be sure to fill those things up until they're just like overflowing. Some's going to slosh out when you're taking it to wherever you have to move this stuff. 
Like, fill it up to the rim. Jesus is going over the top. And not only that, but of course, it's the quality, and that's the point. It's the quality of the wine itself. I think we're meant to look at this and say, Jesus, you, you've done it wrong. You poured out your extravagant abundance in this celebration. Now, the thing I think that seems really wrong to me, if it seems weird or wrong to involve Jesus in the silly or mundane or what seems like to be frivolous things in our lives, I think this seems or feels equally wrong to us, or it could, and maybe to some of you it does. In a world filled with so much poverty and hunger and pain, where does such extravagance and abundance make any sense? Does it make sense? Because in Jesus' day, his world too, his immediate world was filled with those things. I mean, Jesus and his people were under Roman occupation, for crying out loud. There were people enslaved. There, there, were, there were all sorts of advantages being taken care of. Uh, the, the outsider, the marginalized, the poor, the widow, children. In a, in a world just literally outside the walls of this banquet, it was just crumbling. How does Jesus' extravagance and abundance make any sense in that world? Indulging when people are hungry or celebrating when people are hurting. I think we can all agree that The Shawshank Redemption is the greatest movie ever made. Thank you. It's actually up for debate, but... Um, there's so much about this story that I think is so powerful. As I was working on this this week, I, I, I thought about this, this exchange between Andy and Red in prison where Red begins to share that he used to play a mean harmonica. And he turns to Andy and he says, but that don't make much sense in here. And then Andy says, here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so that you don't forget. And Red says, forget. And Andy says, forget that there are places in this world that aren't made out of stone. How does the extravagant love of God make any sense when we look around us and we see the homelessness and brokenness just on our block, let alone in the city or the world? How does it make sense for you educators when you go to school and you see these kids showing up, knowing the homes that some of them are coming from and what they don't have, many of them will take themselves home and uh, in essence sort of raise themselves. Some, some even worse, they'd probably be better off by themselves. How does the extravagant love of God, how much does too much good wine make sense in a world like that? I think it's intentional. I think we're supposed to feel that tension in the story. I think we're supposed to ask that question and then find the answer is somewhere along the lines of this is the kind of world in which it makes the most sense. So that we remember that there are places or a place outside of this world not made of stone, not made of poverty, not made of hunger, not made of hurting. Because the, the miracle here isn't Jesus making more wine. The real miracle here is the new thing that's happening, and that's Jesus pouring himself out into the world. That's the miracle that's happening. Jesus, in other words, like, if I'm going to be involved in this, then I'm going to do this the right way. I'm going to make sure that you understand that these six stones used for ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing, I'm going to fill those with water, the the water of life. Jesus called himself the well that would never run dry. He is the eternal well. And Jesus pours himself out in abundance. He's saying, see, this is what I'm doing. This isn't about the water. It's not about the wine. This is about me. And this is about my love for the world. 
This is how far I will go. And it begins here with me pouring myself out. That is the miracle. The love that's now being poured out in the person of Jesus. So in a world filled with the hungry and the hurting, this is where God's divine generosity makes the most sense because God's extravagant love is never frivolous. And for those of us that are serious about seeing real change and redemption and renewal in the world, I think this is a message to you and message to me. God's extravagant love is never wasted. It's never frivolous. It seems extravagant and over the top, but it's never without a point. Theologian Gail O'Day, she, she writes, an abundance of good wine is an eschatological or a sort of an end-time symbol. It's a sign of, joy, of the joyous arrival of God's new age. And she points to several passages in Scripture. One of them is, and there, there are prophecies about what it's going to be like when, when the Messiah comes, when God manifests himself, when the face of love shows up on the planet. Amos 9 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And then in Joel, uh, the prophet Joel, uh, chapter 3, 18. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of acacias. I think Jesus is teaching us that even in a world filled with the hungry and the hurting, that there is cause for joy and celebration and extravagance, and abundance, and divine generosity, because Jesus is being poured out, ushering in God's joyous new age. And so the joy and the celebration that we experience as followers of Jesus today in, in, in the world, in a broken and hurting world, it serves as a sign of the things to come. See, what Andy is ultimately talking to Red about is hope. That's the thing they can't take away. And so a church without joyous celebration of the radical abundance of God is a, is a church without, the, without hope and without the ability to be hope in a world that needs a sign that something better is coming. And that's coming in the person of Jesus as he's being poured out like new wine to water the valley of the acacias. In other words, yes, we should be brokenhearted over the hungry and the hurting, and we should be active we should also be joyful about the inbreaking love of God in the face of Jesus. So in, to encounter Jesus, number three, we celebrate the activity of Jesus wherever we see it. We involve Jesus, number one. We do the thing that Jesus has called us to do. And then we celebrate the activity of God in our world. So I, wanna, I want you to be free this morning to know to live in joy is not antithetical to the Christian life. Meaning if you smile and if you laugh and if you celebrate, you're not being less Christian. I would argue you're being more. Theologian Robert Hatch, uh, Hodgkins writes that Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We all ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts, and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to veritable orgies of joy because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. I went through a phase in my life where I didn't think that was true. 
I didn't grow up like that. I grew up celebrating and having lots of joy and laughter, but then I got sort of twisted up a little bit in thinking that there's so much hurt and pain in the world, what business do we have? And then I see Jesus laughing in the scriptures all of the time. It's like he's got some sort of inside joke going that nobody else is aware of. And occasionally he lets it out, but the whole, you know, camel through an eye of a needle thing, haha, <laughs> everyone has a good chuckle or whatever. But Jesus is always laughing, seemingly, because Jesus is filled with the joy that comes from a spirit that is not of the world. Jesus is filled with the joy that comes from the spirit that's from another place, another world, a world not made of stone, a world made by God's hand, a world that we call heaven, eternity, or life with God, another realm. I think that's what we learn at a wedding in Cana, that celebration and joy and gladness are all part and parcel to our encountering Jesus. God's extravagant love is never frivolous. Can I give you just four implications for us today based on that? Number one, so what does Jesus reveal to us out of, uh, out, uh, at the wedding in Cana? What does Jesus reveal to us there? Well, one, that prayer is an act of prodding Jesus. And so if I want to encounter Jesus, I'm, I'm going to begin to prod him a little bit more. In other words, I'm going to involve Jesus in even the small, seemingly frivolous moments of my life. Because I've come to the scriptures and I've seen what it looks like when God shows up in the person of Jesus to a people. Jesus actually had an encounter with these people. I've seen how they've responded. And I'm just going to say, yeah, right, I'm going to do what they've done. I'm going to involve Jesus even in the small things in my life. Because now I'm starting to see there's nothing beneath Jesus. Nothing is too low for Jesus. For him to involve himself. There's no moment in my life or need that I have that is too small for Jesus. You might have to get Jesus' attention and say, hey, let's do this. And he might not, you might think, well, he's not paying attention. Well, just keep knocking. Jesus said, this is what prayer is. Keep knocking on my door. I might say, I'm not ready right now. Or I don't want to come or my time's not whatever. But keep knocking. Keep prodding Jesus because nothing is too small. Jesus enters our world. Our cares eventually become his cares when we present them to him and involve Jesus. That's the first implication. Prayer is the act of prodding. Number two, obedience is necessary because Jesus involves us in the thing that he's doing. So in other words, just do whatever he tells you to do. You say, well, how do I know what he's telling me to do? Well, that's a whole other thing. But if you're going to Jesus and you're involving him, then just be quiet and listen. It might be the voice of a friend who knows and loves Jesus, who speaks some truth into your life. Open your Bible each day and read a little bit. God might actually speak through the words on the printed page to you. You could just be on your way to work, sort of in your like, sort of earphone zombie place or whatever, and God may just sort of interrupt whatever jazz or classical or whatever it is you're listening to, and he might speak quietly, and a prompting, a nudge. Well, lean into that. Because Jesus is telling you what to do. We are players and not spectators in God's plan, so do what he tells you to do. Number three, celebration enables us to see Jesus even when there is darkness all around us. That's the third implication. When I begin to celebrate, guess what? I begin to see more of Jesus. It's like you buy a red car and you realize everyone on the road has a red car. 
Or you, whatever it is, you do some sort of thing and you realize you're celebrating this thing and you begin to see everyone else celebrating this stuff. Well, you begin to celebrate the presence of God in your life and you begin to see the presence of God all over the place. It opens our eyes in a dark place to the activity of God. We see that God's heart is toward abundance. And we can be at really good at one of these things. We can be really good at involving Jesus. We can even be good at involving Jesus and, and obeying him. Or we can be good about the celebration part and the involving. But if we're not, but it's, it's when we pull all three of those things together that they begin to bear the fruit of encounter with Jesus. In other words, when I involve Jesus and I do what he says and I celebrate the activity of God, that's the trifecta. Somehow, some way, there is a fruit that grows in that soil as we cultivate those three things in our lives over time. And you know what that thing is that grows in the soil? The fruit of our prayer or involving Jesus, the fruit of our obedience, the fruit of our celebration, the fruit is belief. Which is the fourth implication. A life of prayer, obedience, and celebration bears the fruit of belief in our lives. It's the final two verses. What Jesus did here in Cana, John says. Cana of Galilee. That was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. See, the disciples and the servants would never go to another wedding without remembering what Jesus did in Cana, would they? If they ever got that wedding invitation, immediately they would remember, do, do you remember, do I remember? I was there. I mean, I was standing right next to the pots when they filled them with water. Do I remember? I was next to the servant when he fed it to the banquet master. He had no idea where the wine had come from. Do I remember? That was incredible wine. They could never go to another wedding feast. They could never drink another glass of wine. They could never do any of that without remembering the first sign. When Jesus came and revealed his glory. See, over a lifetime of involving Jesus in the mundane, and a lifetime of doing what he says, and a lifetime of celebrating what he does, more and more of our world begins to look like the glory of Jesus. See, when I trust Jesus in this one spot or with this one person, I can't see that person or go to that spot without seeing Jesus and his glory there. See, when I involve Jesus over here in this little mundane thing, which is like paying a bill, so well, that's not very mundane, that's true, but I involve him in that, and then that bill is paid. I can't open another bill without remembering God's faithfulness. Everywhere I look now, I can look at a bill, and it reminds me of God's faithfulness. I can look at this corner over here, and I remember that God's glory showed up because I responded in obedience. I can go to a boardroom, I can wait on this train, I can do, do all of this stuff, and all of a sudden the world begins to look more and more like God and his glory because it's filled with the moments that I've entrusted to him and involved him in my life. Jesus is pouring himself out in renewal and abundance of the whole world, and like the master of the banquet, most of the world doesn't know where that wine is coming from, so guess what? It is our joy to point the world to the source of the wine. To say, you think that's good? You're right, that is good. Can I tell you where that came from? You think that's good? The reason that's so good is because God has come and he's poured himself out into the world through the person of Jesus. 
And he's done it in my life over and over and over again. You see over there in this part of the world, you see that God's doing it there. And you see this person over here who was healed of cancer, God's doing it there. And you see this person over here whose life has been completely transformed. See, God's doing it there. This homeless person that is now going back to work and has a place to stay. See, that's God. He's doing it there because God is pouring out his love in the person of Jesus. It is our joy to point people to Jesus. Father, would you come now? And would you encounter us? Would you visit us? Jesus, would you come and invite us? So, Father, following the pattern of the story, we collectively, we just call upon you now to act on our behalf. Father, some of us have some physical condition Father, would you act now? We're involving you in that. We think your time has come. Father, some of us are starting to despair a little bit. Jesus, we're involving you this morning. You see that? That's, would you move, would you move there? We're involving you, Jesus. Now give us the courage to obey you with our lives, to rearrange whatever it takes in our lives to get to encounter you, to get rid of those things and to add those other things or whatever it is, God. We know you won't make it complicated, but make it clear. This morning we'll celebrate your goodness to us, the fact that you've come and You've been with us today. Manifest your presence even now by your spirit with us. Come Holy Spirit as we worship you, as we remember you, God.